to speak today on passion for God. And I want to speak from the subject of how do we cultivate that hunger for God, right? Because nothing stirs up the passion in our heart for God like the love that we have for him, right? And I always say that passion makes the best disciples. Because when someone is passionate about something, you don't have to talk them into doing things, right? They just do them, right? But for a, for a moment, think about the disciples. That when they first started following Jesus, they were so excited to be around him, right? Asking all these questions, sometimes getting into trouble, you know, very immature. They were very immature, just as how a lot of us are when we first come to Jesus, but they were very excited, right? But fast forward three and a half years into this, and they're falling asleep in the garden. Because, see, the challenge of our walk is this. How do we walk with God without becoming too familiar? How do we walk with God without becoming too complacent? Because it's natural for the human condition. It's natural for us to get over things. Does that make sense? We get used to things. Like, that's why we feel like we have to have a new car every four to five years, whatever. You see what I'm trying to say? Like, things get old to us. So we have to make a deliberate, deliberate strive to make sure that not only our relationship with God, but our other relationships stay fresh, right? Um, let's read uh, Leviticus chapter 6 for, for, for a moment. I want to open up with this scripture today. And it says, And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Verse 13. And a fire shall always be burning on the altar, and it shall never go out. Say never. never. Now, what does never mean? Never means never. I didn't have to look up the Greek word or the Hebrew word. I didn't have to pull out the concordance because never means the same in every language. He says the fire shall never go out. Now, you may be thinking, okay, this is the Old Testament, right? And He's speaking of an altar where they're making sacrifices, right? And we know that Jesus became our sacrifice, right? But I believe that we have an altar in the New Testament. That altar is our heart. Our heart becomes the altar that God's fire can fall upon. And today we want to talk about passion for God. You know, anybody, anyone ever spend any time in a, in a cabin or in the mountains? Anybody? Anybody ever go skiing? No? Anybody? I'm the only. Oh, there you go. Yay. That, 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 by the way, when someone raises their hands, it helps me because if no one raises their hands, then it's just awkward, you know. So, but anyways, I, I was, um, I was, just in December, I was in Tennessee. Love Tennessee, by the way. If, I started thinking to myself, if I didn't live in Texas, I may consider Tennessee, but Texas is too awesome, right? So, but I was in the Smoky Mountains, and uh, I was in the cabin every night. I slept in the living room, and I slept by uh, the fireplace. Now, I don't know if you've ever slept by a fireplace, but it's awesome because there's this crackling sound that the fire makes, you know, and it becomes peaceful to the point where, like, on our, on our phone apps, anybody got the sleep aid, you can actually get the fire crackling noise, you know. But I didn't have that app. I had the real thing, and I loved it. For about a week, I slept there with, or for five days or whatever, I slept there with the um, fire. But 
it was cold. It was snowing in the mountains. So what I would have to do, oh, and at this point I had like a beard and everything. So I felt like a full-blown mountain man, you know. So I had the snow boots and everything. I was, I was just a mountain man for a few days. And I had to keep waking up and putting a, a firewood on the fire. And then if, I don't know if y'all have ever built a fire. I'm not talking about building a fire with the lighter fluid or nothing like that. I'm talking about like where you get the pine cones and the newspapers and you got to, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like you have to blow on it to not let the fire go out. And you have to work to keep that fire going, right? So when I'm thinking of this, that's immediately what I thought of, you know, by the end of that trip, I was a fire expert. I mean, I can start a fire anywhere. That's what I feel like. But, you know, I, I, I thought about this and I'm thinking, how true is this about our relationship with God? He says here, the priest shall keep it burning. Now, we just said that in the New Testament, we have an altar, and he said the priest. And you may be thinking, well, he was talking to the priesthood, but what does the Bible say we are in the New Testament? Priest and kings unto God. So he lights the fire, but we have to keep it burning. See, this is why the Bible tells us to guard our hearts, because as we guard our hearts, we guard our affections. But let's just, let's, let's, I want to build this slowly. Is that okay? Our relationship with God is known as what? A marriage. Okay. In Genesis, in the garden, we see a marriage. And in Revelation, we see it ends with a marriage. Right? The church, we, his body, are known as his bride. It always feels, feels weird calling myself a bride, but if I can be a bride, the rest of you guys can, okay? But the simple truth is, is that the church, us, the ones who are chosen, called by God, the ones he has saved, sanctified, redeemed, filled with the Holy Spirit, all that, we're called his bride. Think about that for a second. So in other words, that changes this whole dynamic of we're married to Jesus. And I've heard people say that, you know, I'm not married, but I've heard people say that relationships are 50-50. But I'm smart enough to know that's not true. Relationships are 100-100. It's two people giving 100% of their effort and their heart to each other, right? The important thing to see is this, is that he is a good groom, meaning this. He lights the fire. One of the, one of the things when we talk about hunger for God, it's important for us to know is that we can't be hungry for God all on our own. He's the one that lights the fire. Jesus was the one that initiated this relationship. I don't know about y'all, but I'm a little old school. I still think that a, a man should court a woman, right? But nowadays, these girls are getting bold, like, you know. They're starting to court man, and it's like, what? Like, I'm just not with that, you know? I'm just not. You know what I mean? Like, I believe. <laughs> let, let, me, let me throw out my disclaimer. By the way, I believe in women's rights, okay? I, I believe in equal pay. I believe in all that stuff. I just think that when it comes to relationships, a man should pursue a woman. <laughs> And Jesus, being the good groom that he is, pursued us. We didn't find God. We always say, I found God on this day. He was not lost. It's not like we were wandering around and like Jesus is walking like, hey, I found you. And Jesus is like, oh, thank God you found me. No. <laughs> we 
were lost and he found us. Because, see, that changes the whole dynamic because he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done. The Bible says that we love him because he first. Amen. So when we start to see this as a marriage, it starts to kind of shift our, our, our paradigm a little bit. And it's like any relationship, you have to keep your intimacy and your flame of love going, right? Now, listen, I'm not married, but I'm observing. And, you know, the Bible says the wise man learns from other people's mistakes. Right? I'm smart enough to know this is that after you marry your wife, you still have to date your wife. Right? If you don't, just see what happens, you know. <laughs> because when a relationship begins to lose its, its intimacy, it begins to die. Same thing goes with our relationship with Jesus. Now, his affections for us don't die because that whole 100-100, one thing that we can be sure of, he always gives 100%. Usually, it's on our side of the fence that we kind of, you know, fumble the ball. Now, we're human, right? We make mistakes. And we can't ever outlove God, but we can try, right? I, I believe, though, that even though we're not perfect and we fail him, I believe that it's still, and according to Scripture, our job and our, our, our duty to not only guard our heart, but to do our very best to love him 100%. That's what grace is there for. Grace is there to help us when we can't do it. But see, we don't boast about our weaknesses, we boast in our weaknesses so that grace empowers us to do things that we couldn't do before. That's what grace is. It's empowerment, right? And so through grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have the capacity to love God. I'm about to show you why in just a second. But how many of you know that love is ultimately a choice? It's our choice whether to love God. God chose to love us. No one forced him to, and God is not going to force us to love him. He's just not going to do it. And before I move on, I would like to say that I believe that one of the tragedies that, that takes place and one of the tragedies that I think is happening in America is that if we're not careful, we become too familiar with a God that we barely know. Does that make sense? We can become too familiar with a God that we barely know. And they, they just um, interviewed a pastor from China, and he came to China from I mean, he came to America, sorry, he came to China from China. <laughs> he came to America from China, and he toured the, the American churches, and they said, what do you think? And he said, I love them. He said, they have a lot to offer the churches here, but he said, there's one concern I have, is that much of the, the churches in America, are, are they're getting good at doing church without God. You see, see we're blessed here, okay, because we belong to a church that places such an, a strong emphasis of worship and his presence. That's why we have to fight to keep that passion here. You understand? That's not something that we take lightly. We fight to keep that here. But in America as a whole, a, part, a lot of the spiritual climate is that people are placing less and less emphasis on the presence of Jesus, right? So we, we must never get good at doing church without God. And we can't get good at doing our lives without God either. Amen? Amen. We got to have his principles and his presence because his principles without his presence is a kingdom without a king. And the whole point is the king anyway. You see, 
You, we get both. We get both. So real quick, before I jump into the crux of what I want to talk about today, here are a few things that, you, that are indicators that your passion or your hunger for God is lacking, okay? No particular order. I'm just going to run through them real quick. When our hearts have divided affections, meaning this, where we see our heart begin to not be solely focused on God, we begin to notice that our heart begins to be divided, right? That happens sometimes, right? Another, another ways we find that our, our, our passion or hunger is lacking is that we begin to pull away from spiritual engagement, meaning pulling away from church, right? Pulling away from prayer, pulling away from the Bible, pulling away from community. That's so important. When you start isolating yourself, that's very dangerous. People think that it's me, myself, and I, and it's God, me, and you. You understand? It's all of us together. Community is meant to help us stay rooted and grounded. When we start pulling away from community, that's dangerous. That's an indicator something's going on in our heart, right? And then worship. How many of you have, and we all go through certain dry periods, right, where you see everybody worshiping and they're feeling it. I mean, they're getting like a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit and everything, you, you know, and you're just like, man, I can't feel anything. That could be a, a dry season we all go through, but it could also be something that God is trying to work on your heart with, right? And although these sometimes these seasons are normal for us to go to, they should not be our normal everyday experience for us. That agree? Another indicator that our passion is beginning to lack or our hunger is beginning to lack is if we start relying on yesterday's experience. We start relying on what God did 10 years ago, what God did five years ago, what God did a year ago. It's, it, we can't rely on yesterday's manna. You understand? Man shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every day, God has something for you to receive. And we cannot live on yesterday's intimacy, yesterday's word, yesterday's this. We need to constantly be pressing into Jesus more and more. Is that right? And obviously sin, that's, that's an easy one to say. Because, see, when you're passionately in love with Jesus, it's harder to sin. Am I right? Think about it. You know when you first get saved, you throw away all your CDs, you're throwing out all your DVDs, you're like, oh, I'm getting rid of all these, de-. you know. A few months in, you're like, man, you're digging in the trash can. <laughs> I'm sorry. What I'm trying to say is this, is that, I, and there's a balance. I know there's a balance, but do you know like, that when you're, you know that passion you have, when you're passionate about Jesus, you become less passionate about sin. But when you become passionate about sin, you will become less passionate about Jesus. You understand? So when sin starts to show up in forms of fashion, you know that's an indicator that somewhere sin got into your life, right? All of these things will hinder your passion. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. And I, I want us to see something here. And he says, then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's something that I realized that I had never realized before about Genesis is this. Go and do a, go and do a study on your own. I really encourage this. And watch how God created the rest of the world. He spoke, when he wanted to create light, what did he do? He spoke to the darkness. When he wanted to create time, he spoke to time, right? When he wanted to create the oceans, divided, he spoke to things and they happened, okay? But when he created us, he spoke to himself. So when he was creating everything else, he spoke that way. But when he created us, he spoke this way. He had a conversation with himself about us. 
He said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Because no other creation can say that they have that but us. Science will try to tell us that we're nothing more than animals, but it's not true. We have the same creator and we may have some of the same fingerprints of God because we all came from the same place. But we are a special and a unique creation. Even more than the angels. And people say, how do you know that? Because the Bible doesn't give us any indicator that there's any redemptive grace for angels. When the angels sin, they fail. When we sin, he died. There's a big difference because there's something, there's something about us that gets his emotions, gets his heart stirred up. Go to, go, go to Genesis 2-7, please, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you, Rob. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now, a better translation actually says a living soul. Say soul. Now, the thing that is amazing about how God created us is that God created us with the capacity to be loved by him and to love him back. When you look at animals, they don't have the same capacity that we have, right? Trees don't have that capacity. Why can't a tree love God the way we do? Because they don't have a soul, right? There's, a, there's always a debate over where, whether animals have souls or not. I don't know, but all I know is that we were created unique and we have a soul that was created with the capacity to, to be loved by God and to love him back. So he, because God is not going to ask us to do something that we can't do. Am I right? Isn't it incredible that he spoke to himself? Think about that for a second. He had a conversation with himself about us. And... This is the tricky part. Okay, now this is where we're going to start rolling here. Ready to roll? For service. We were created to worship the creator, not his creation. Let me explain why I'm saying that. Because sometimes we put the cart before the horse. In verse 1, those same passages of scripture that we read... We see that God also created Adam with a mandate to have what? Dominion. That's where that drive in every single one of us comes from, to be something and to do stuff and to do things, right? That's where that drive comes from, okay? Like when you think about all the people in, in history, like Alexander the Great and all this stuff, you know, who conquered all these empires and all, all the people who've done great stuff. That drive to do something was put there by God, but not everybody uses their drive for God. This is where we sometimes put the cart before the horse because everything in life is supposed to flow out of this one calling that we're called to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And out of that comes the stuff that we do in life. What happens is sometimes we place more emphasis on the stuff that, that we do than actually who we are because we think that who, what we do is who we are. What you do for a living is not who you are. Who you are is Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Your first and highest calling is in mine is to know God, to love God, and to be loved by God. Everything else that we do in life flows out of that. And I would say that when we, when we put the cart before the horse, meaning when we put all the other priorities in front of that, everything else gets messed up. 
loving Jesus is the plumb line for everything else in our life. Because if God can be first, then you're not just a businessman. You're a businessman that God can use. If you're a teacher, you're not just a teacher. You're then a teacher that God can use. You see? But it's all about this understanding of how the things flow in life. Because, see, God ordained work, but first God ordained this. We've got to get this right, and this fixes everything. Jesus said, seek ye first, uh, and all of these things shall be added. So usually what, what pulls away our affections for God are things that are created. When things that are created were never supposed to steal our affections away, the creator, the uncreated God, was supposed to have our utmost and highest creation. I mean, uh, love, right? Okay, I'm going somewhere. Y'all with me? Give me an example. Now, some people would say, oh, you're just too philosophical on this. Okay, well, maybe so, but this is what I do, right? I don't use the word love for everything anymore. Think about this. I want you to think about how many times a day we say love. Oh, I love that car. I love that house. I love ice cream. I love that show. Let's think about what we're saying here. Can a car love you back? In fact, in four or five years, you're going to want a new one. Can you love ice cream? Maybe Bluebell. You know, I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not, just kidding. But, but ice cream can't love you back. See, we give pieces of our heart away all the time that was meant for God. It's okay for us to enjoy things. You understand what I'm saying? But everything is not supposed to have our love. God doesn't have a problem with money, with houses, with cars, and all that, but he has a problem when it starts stealing our affections for him. Because he created Adam, and then he created the garden for Adam, and he said, this is yours. See, God has stuff for you, but God is not going to give you something that's going to take away his affections for you. People say, how much is too much? This is, it's different for everybody. However much take, people say, how much is too much? Basically, this is my rule of thumb. Whatever takes away your trust and dependence upon God, that's too much. And I pray a prayer all the time. I want, I don't, we shouldn't, God wants us to be blessed and have nice things and all that kind of stuff. But I pray a prayer all the time. God, if it's going to take my affections away from, from you, don't give it to me. Please don't give it to me. Please, please, please. Because at all costs, we have to guard this relationship that we have for him. You understand that? God doesn't have a problem with all these other stuff we enjoy as long as we don't love them, Right? There's nothing wrong with money, but what does the Bible say? The root of evil is the love of money. The love of money is the root of evil, right? It doesn't have a problem with money. It's the love of money. See, that's where we fall into loving the creation rather than the creator. And if we, if we stay loving the creator, then we enjoy the creation. You understand? But sometimes the cart goes before the horse. So those are some of the things that sometimes gnaw and take away from um, our passion for God. Now, I'm going to hit three points today. Three points. Say three. And that, I want to talk about how to cultivate hunger for God, and I'm going to move to these pretty quickly, okay? And I want you to repeat after me. Say knowledge. knowledge. Say posture. posture. And say pursuit. pursuit. Knowledge. Knowledge. Posture. Posture. Pursuit. Okay. On how to cultivate hunger in our life, how do we cultivate that passion? It's like we said earlier, okay? On our own, by ourselves, we can't generate hunger for God. 
We, you know, sometimes we make a statement, like, and I've even made the statement, and then I've had to really think about it. We'll say stuff like, okay, you know, people in the world are hungry for God, which they're hungry for something, but they don't know it's God. Because if they knew it was God, they would find him. It's they, they're hungry for something, but they don't know it's God yet. Does that make sense? Because Paul addresses this in the New Testament. He said if, if we could find God on our own, then we wouldn't need his help, right? We need the help of God not only to find God, we need the help of God to love God. Our love pursuit of God begins at his pursuit of us. It's when his pursuit becomes our knowledge. The Bible says be filled with the knowledge of his will. We can't love a God that we don't understand his love for us. How, we, how passion is generated is when God seeks us out and reveals how much he loves us. It starts, you know, there's a book that I would recommend everybody read. It's called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. I highly recommend it. But it's important for us to know foundationally that the Holy Spirit drew you at salvation. You didn't believe, none of us believe on Jesus on our own. Did you know that? The Bible says none comes to the Father unless he draws them. The Holy Spirit drew us to him, right? The Holy Spirit helped us believe on Jesus. We made a decision to believe. And now the Holy Spirit is there to lead us into intimacy with Jesus every day. Because speak, the Holy Spirit is about a lot more than just speaking in tongues. Because Jesus said, I'll send you the comforter, the helper, the guide, the teacher. What it, who, who, is he te who is he talking to us about? He's talking to us about Jesus. When the Holy Spirit is in, in us, it's as if Jesus were walking with us by our side. So the same, the same call that the disciples have, we have to walk with him. And you see, it's, it's, it's there that we understand that he initiates it. That but we respond. But we have to be filled with the knowledge that God wants us. Some of us still have a hard time accepting that. We think that God is someone that we have to twist and beg him to love us. You don't. The, his thoughts for us outnumber the sand on the, on, on the shore. He knows the numbers of hairs that we have on our heads. He thought about us before we were ever born when... When at creation, he, we're the only creatures that he thought about and planned out things for. We are very dear to the heart of God. So it starts with this knowledge that we have that we settle in our mind. No matter how evil and, and vile we may be sometimes in our human state, God in his infinite love loved us. For whatever reason, he loved us. And it's not our place to argue with God about that, right? It's our place to receive. Amen. So say knowledge. Now, we're moving on to posture. Say posture. Now, like we just said, on our own, we can't stir up the hunger. God stirs it. Now, what is our response to God? Now, this is what I think is key, okay, is I, I believe the way that we not only get hungry for God, but the way that we stay hungry for God is to posture ourselves correctly, right? Say posture one more time. The posture that I'm talking about is humility. Now, humility is one of those words that we've heard a million times that if we're not careful, we'll, we won't, we'll stop and miss the significance of it, right? Does that make sense? In every other area of life, right, especially in school, review is an important process of learning. Sometimes in church we need to relearn things, right? 
so that we make sure that we understand it. Because sometimes we take for granted that, oh, I just know what that means and I got, you know what I'm trying to say? Humility is one of those words that should be at the forefront of everything that we seek, okay? Because what humility is, is absolute surrender. Andrew Murray said it like this, pride must die in us or nothing in heaven can live in us. He said it another way in this way, humility is the enthronement of God on our hearts. Humility is putting God on the throne on our hearts. Humility is absolute surrender. The reason why that's important is that we'll never be able to experience all that God has for us until we settle this issue of ownership. Who owns us? Are we our own? Or were we bought with a price? See, we look at a man like Paul, who can be shipwrecked, beaten, thrown in jail, and all these things, and he comes out on the other side of that, and he says stuff like, you know, I'm content. You know, I get mad when the donut shop closes on Sunday. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, think about it. You know, but he's content. He just got beat, shipwrecked, all this stuff, persecuted. And he comes out saying stuff like, man, I'm content. I'm actually kind of happy. And it's just like, gosh, like there's something that, that, he's, that he understands. Because, see, Paul very early on settled this whole issue of ownership. He said, my life is not my own. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He understood that his whole life depended upon God. And see, we have to settle that ownership issue in our lives because sometimes we, 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 we've given parts of our heart to God, but there's those little pieces that we want to still own. And God is saying, no, 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 no. This is the requirement that you give all of you to me. You know, we just talked about this this past weekend at our young adults thing on, on, on Tuesday night. We talked about how salvation is so much more than just saying a prayer. Because after salvation, what is the call? The call is to follow Jesus. After we say that prayer, what do we do? We follow Jesus every day. He said, if you'll come and follow me, pick up your cross, deny yourself, all those things. And it goes so much further than just praying a prayer because praying that prayer is just the beginning. Because as we follow Jesus daily, as we die daily, we give more of ourselves to him. But if we don't settle that ownership issue, then how can God revive our passions if we have a hundred different passions going in a hundred different ways? God is trying to say, I'm trying to get your focus on me first. You've got to see me. And when God asks us to give up stuff, it's not because he's trying to take it from us. He is trying to take our desires and give us better desires. He does not ask us to give anything that he doesn't have something better in return. But see, that's his requirement that we be all in. If you look, uh, we talked about Peter on Tuesday night. We talked about Peter and how when God called Peter, obviously Peter was very immature, right? We, we can see that because of some of his actions later on. But we talked about this. When Jesus calls us, he doesn't call us as we are now. He calls us how we will be in the future. When he first, the first time he met Peter, he said, Peter, you're the rock. But Peter was still crazy. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, this is before he tried to kill people and tried to, you know, slice off the ear and, one time Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, all kind of stuff. But yet when Jesus meets him, he says, you're the rock. Because Jesus always calls you as you're called to be, not who you are right now. You see what I'm saying? But, there's this, but there was one requirement. See, that's what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus is willing to take all of our baggage, all of our sin, all of our issues. He's willing to work all of that out with us. But he says, there's one stipulation. Follow me. And these boys dropped their nets. They left their businesses every, to follow him. And my question today is, have we made it too cheap to follow Jesus? Because salvation is free, but following Jesus cost us, right? The only way for passion to be awakened in our heart from God is to allow certain things to die. Certain things have to die in us so that certain things can be resurrected in us. And God is trying to take all of the things that, that exist that aren't called to be there so that he can give us in return passion. Amen. Am I making sense today? It's at this place, it, and that's what humility is. You know, we could give a long definition of humility, but humility is this. It's de total dependence upon God. That's what it is, simply. It's at that place that we become dependent upon God that we say, God, my heart is an altar that your fire can fall upon, and I'll keep it burning. Amen. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we don't have to read it. You don't even got to put it up. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we see that when Israel had just left Egypt, or Israel had already left Egypt, and God had to humble Israel. He had to humble them. And it says that he humbled them, and they became hungry. Because, see, humility produces hunger. Israel kept having mood swings, right? One day Israel was like, oh, we love you, God. The next day it's like we're building idols. You know, it's like one day it's like, oh, you know, we're seeing your glory. Like there's like you have a glory cloud following you everywhere. You got a rock following you in the wilderness. It's like how much more do you need to see? But this is why I always say a miracle, a sign, and a wonder will never make you love Jesus. That is your choice. It may get your attention. It may help start it. But miracles and all that, they don't, they don't, that's not what makes love. You see, so we see this in Israel. Well, God eventually had to humble Israel to make them hungry for him again. And it says that he fed them manna, right? I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait till I get so full of pride that God has to humble me every time in a drastic way. When I could live, I can, I can strive to live from a place of humility the best way that I can and say, God, here I am. I desperately need you. I can't, I can't follow you on my own. I can't love you on my own. I can't do anything on my own. I, as a matter of fact, I can't wake up on my own. I, it's your, your breath keeps me alive. You keep every part of my life going. And so many times God, you know, we, a lot of times we start there. But how many know it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish, right? And so what happens is God has to wrestle with Israel what is the whole Old Testament really about? It's about a love fight, fit, a love fit. He, he, Israel would turn to God, return to God, then they would turn away from God. And God, is, God says, I'm a jealous God. I, I long for the affections of my people. That keep, you know, and that's what God says to us today. I'm longing for the affections of my people. Love me. Love me with all your heart. So this is what humility does. Humility produces hunger. Amen. It's a posture. Say posture. Now think about Jesus' life for just one minute. Did Jesus lead from a position? No. 
Jesus led from a posture because he was a king and he was God, but he says he put that aside and he became a man. And what does the Bible say? He humbled himself even unto death, through obedience unto death, right? Now, the thing that I find interesting about that is that you have somebody that's fully God and fully man, but he says, okay, I'm going to put this God nature aside for a second. And he says, and I'm going to show the world what can happen when a man submits himself to God. When every time that Jesus did a miracle, he never one time said, I'm doing this because I'm God's son. He didn't call on his divinity to perform a miracle. He called on his relationship. Because, see, Jesus lived in a place of humility where he said, I only do what I see my father doing. D.L. Moody used to say, the world has yet to see what God can do through people who completely surrender themselves to God. Jesus was showing us an example of how to live. Jesus lived from a posture, even though he was God, he lived from a posture where he was submitted and humbled before God, and God used him, and then Jesus gave us this mandate, greater things have you been called to do than me. And maybe the reason why sometimes those passions aren't awakened in us and we're not doing some of those things is because God is still trying to get us to a place where we're, we humble ourselves and we're saying, God, we're dependent upon you. I can't do this in my own strength. I can't love you in my own strength. I have to have your help. Amen? You know, one of the enemies of this is, you know, it, it, obviously it's pride. But see, pride comes in many ways. Pride can be this. Pride can be, oh, I don't need God. I can do my own thing. Or pride can be, I've been saved for 20 years. I know how to do this. No one's going to teach me anything. Like, you see what I'm trying to say? That's that getting familiar with God. Feeling like there's nothing new to learn. Feeling like there's nothing new to that's a place you don't want to be because God can't work with that. God can't work with either one. God has to have people that say, God, I need you as, as much as I did on that first day that you saved me. I need you today as much as I did then. That's the people that God can use. Amen? So humility actually postures us to receive more from God. God can't work with pride. He can't. But he can work with people who will humble themselves and seek his favor. And humility is not a one-time thing. Humility is a lifestyle. Humility is not self-hate. That's not what it is. Humility is self-denial. Some people think this, that humility is walking around hating yourself. That's not, what, that's not it. Humility is power under control. You know who you are, but yet you choose not to think about you. You choose to think about other, the things that God's called you to do. Amen? So we, we want God to help us stay in that posture. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but has anyone ever been broken up with somebody for being too clingy? That's like the worst. If you've ever been broken up and, she's, and, and the person's like, you're too clingy, that's just like the worst. That's just like dagger to the heart, all that stuff, right? Some of y'all are like, I've, I've, I've been the one broke up with somebody. <laughs> But this is what I love about Jesus, is that it's okay to be clingy with Jesus. As a matter of fact, I recommend you be clingy with Jesus. Last thing I'm going to say, and I'm moving on, I'm closing quickly, is this, is that humility puts us out of the reach of the enemy. And into, the, and into a position that God can pour into us. 
Humility strips away all self because, see, God can't fill us unless we're empty. And it's in that place of absolute surrender that we live from that God can work with. And God is never going to take something from us that he's not going to give us something better. Amen. Say, and the last thing, the last point I'm making today is say pursuit. Say pursuit. Now, this is the, this is the, this is the challenge. The challenge of, of all of us believers is this. How do we be full of God but yet hungry for more? You understand what I mean? How do we be full of God, like we're like oozing God, but yet hungry for more? Because see, in the natural, hunger is not a good thing, right? Hunger, hunger in the natural is an indicator that your body needs food, it needs nurturance, I mean, whatever. Getting tongue-tied. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to go a long time without eating unless you're fasting, right? I know no one wants to hear about fasting. You're thinking about those restaurants, you know, it's like, please say amen. <laughs> okay. Um, but in the natural, hunger is an indicator that something's wrong. But in the spiritual, hunger is an indicator that something is right. Does that make sense? And in the natural, how do you get hungry? You get hungry by not eating. But in the spiritual, you get hungry by eating. David said, I've tasted and I've seen that God is good. So in the natural, you eat and you get full and that's it. But in the spiritually speaking, you eat and you get more hungry. And then you keep eating and you get more hungry and you keep eating and you get more hungry. The, 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 problem, the problem is, is that sometimes we just stop eating. We just stop meeting with Jesus. We stop those moments. You know that time we used to take, those moments we used to share with him. We just stop eating. And God is saying, my invitation is still there. Come to my table. That communion is still available to each and every one of us. And when we stop being hungry, we're living off of yesterday's intimacy. And as I'm closing, I want to present this idea that I believe that not only is this, this pops up as an issue in some of our lives, but I believe it's the issue in America right now. And let me explain. In America right now, we're banking off of our spiritual past. Meaning we're banking off 250 years ago, our forefathers were Christians. But I'm, right now, I'm really concerned about our spiritual future. Where are the future men and women of God? Like the women of God that built the country. You understand what I'm trying to say? Thank God that we had a revival in the 1800s. Thank God for Jonathan Edwards. Thank God for the Wesley brothers. Thank God for George Whitfield. Thank God for Charles Finney. Thank God for all of these guys. Thank God for everything. Thank God for George Washington. But right now, our dollar bill is saying, God, we trust, but our culture is telling us something different. And we can't keep just banking off men and women who lived 250 years ago. God needs some people to rise up here and now. You understand? We need, not, not, only, not only do we need a fresh move of God in America, I'm telling you, we do. We do. We need, a, we need a, an awakening. We need God to awaken his people, right? But we need, we need men and women to rise up with passion who can actually influence and change things and stir some things up. Because I promise you, the help that our country needs is not political. You can't show me one country in the history of mankind that ever fixed their situations with politics. You would think by now we would, we would get the hang of it. 
Only God can truly deliver us from the state that we're in. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our problem is not political, it's spiritual. And we can't keep banking off of 250 years ago, George Washington was a man of God. Or 200 years ago, there was a revival, you know, and the Great Awakening. What, what does God want to do today? What does God want to do through you? What does God want to do through me? What about right now's revival? Where are the men and women of God that God is raising up right now with passion? Psalm chapter 40, verse 17, and then I'm going to have you stand. David prayed a prayer one time. He said, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Now, what's interesting is that when David prayed this prayer, he was a king. The last time I checked, kings aren't usually poor and needy. In fact, he had armies, he had wealth, he had servants. He had resources, wives. But he said, I'm poor and needy. And a lot of us look up to David, and for good reason. We, you know, we look to the Psalms for inspiration for our own walk with God. What did David understand? David understood Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What David is saying is I'm wealthy, I got money, I got all this stuff, but that's not what I really need. I'm poor in spirit and I need God. And this is, this is, this is the powerful thing. This is what's so powerful about this. He prayed this in a palace. We shouldn't just pray this prayer when we actually need something. When God elevates us, we need to still pray this prayer and say, God, I'm poor and I'm needy. I'm still dependent upon you. All this stuff can be here tomorrow, I mean today and gone tomorrow, but I still need you, God. Because at the end of our lives, this is what matters. This is what we were created to be, created to do, was to know God and to have that 